0: Ladies and gentlemen, want to be better, richer, happier? Of course you do. Welcome to the Be Less Crap podcast. Let's go. A podcast devoted to helping you become a less mediocre human with your host, very much a work in progress herself, Charlotte Sherston.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Charlotte and this is the Be Less Crap podcast. Uh, Today on the pod, I have an author, prominent health journalist, co-host of Channel 10's Everyday Health. Fair amount of multitasking right there. Welcome to the show, Casey Barros. We're
0: really happy to have you here. Thank you for having me.
1: Um, Today, we're kind of here really to celebrate the release of your latest book, Um, with the rather excellent title, The Bad Girl's Guide to Better. It's a stealth help guide to getting your act together. And it covers a lot, as I was saying. I mean, this is a book in which you basically very kindly air your own dirty laundry um, Mm -hmm. and admit to a lot of your own bad girl behavior that I'm sure a lot of us can relate to, but also kind of swoops in and saves the day with sort of best friends sisterly advice and a number of lessons I mean it's, it's full of fucking lots of good advice um <laughs> uh, so. it, it doesn't matter whether you're 18 or you're about to like me turn fucking 48 um <laughs> so let's let's just go back to the kind of a bit about the beginning tell us a bit mm. about you being a bad girl and what does that look like so maybe some of uh, our listeners
0: might feel a little bit better about their own behaviors Mm. So, it's it's really interesting. When we were throwing around the title for this book, I remember my publisher said to me, originally it was going to be called The Bad Girl's Guide to Good. And the reason that I was quite interested in exploring this concept of the bad girl is that I think we've all been told at some point by someone that we're bad, whether it was a teacher or somebody that we we're in a relationship with or our parents and I don't know necessarily that in 2021 that that a bad girl truly exists anymore. I'd like to think that we've really, really moved past that. So where I suppose where it started for me and why I was considered a bad girl was what we what we used to consider a bad girl to be, say a, deco- a decade or two ago, which is probably that you drank too much, you went out on the weekends, you probably weren't in entirely monogamous relationships all of the time. These are uh, behaviours that were very much uh, acceptable and even. Um, even like very much approved in men and yet in women, they were still very much frowned upon. So if we think about that model of like a Samantha from the Sex from Sex and the City, we would consider her to be a bad girl. Now, I don't know many women that haven't done a lot of the things that I have done, you know, growing up in the time in which I did. So I'm 37 now. You know, I've grown up in the era of watching people like Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton build entire not only careers but empires off the back of something like a sex tape so I it's been a really interesting it's been a really interesting ride for me personally over the last couple of decades to grow through some of those behaviors myself but also as a journalist and as a a member of the community watching what this is what society has has now kind of what what we might now consider to be a bad girl and so the, the reference for a bad girl that I use in the book is, is not actually gendered. So you can be a, a guy and be a bad girl. Really what it's about is somebody who breaks rules and makes new ones. And that could be in the best possible way. So I give examples like Malala Yousafzai or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Coco Chanel. They would all be women that would be considered bad girls because they didn't necessarily fit the mold of, of perhaps how they should have behaved at that time. And so I guess the The title really has twofold uh, or twofold objectives. One is to help us break up with some of the behaviours that make us feel bad about ourselves. So that's first and foremost. But the second is to try and learn to kind of harness, I call it your bad vantage. So if anyone, everybody who is listening to this has done something bad, been through something bad, stuffed something up, kept a secret. And what I know for sure is that you learn more from the things that you get wrong than you will ever learn from the things that you get right. And so being able to acknowledge that, yes, perhaps that wasn't our best decision, however, we learnt a lesson and we're able to kind of carry that moving forward and perhaps we wouldn't make that same decision or that same mistake, if you want to call it that again, that has real power. And so rather than, rather than running away perhaps from who we used to be, let's say that you used to be a drinker or a bully or, uh, I don't know, a cheater, I don't subscribe to that notion that a leopard can't change its spots. I think that we get to choose who we want to be every single day. And so I hope that the book, I loved that you called it, you know, big sisterly advice. That's exactly what I want it to do. I want it to feel like your big sister who maybe made a few mistakes along the way, but now she's this incredibly wise, very funny, kind of sassy person who will hold your hand and lead you through the good bits, the bad bits and everything in between.
1: Well, I think you definitely achieved that. I mean, what's fascinating to me as well, um, I finished reading it this morning in bed and you cover like some big, heavy, weighty topics, you know, from Mm -hmm. things like, you know, eating disorders and sexual abuse. But All the way along, it's, it bubbles with that warmth and there's a lot of humor, there's bits where I laughed Mm -hmm. out loud and I'm kind of a hard crowd when it comes to (laughs) like actually laughing out loud. So there's, there's some terrific stuff in there. I think, um, there's a couple of the lessons that I want to focus in on because there were certainly Mm. things that resonated with me, um, and I, I think the the idea, the notion of imperfection is obviously great that we're coming. I very much always come from that instead of those perfect people that you see on Instagram who living in Byron and they meditate and they're doing everything great mm-hmm. and they, you know, don't admit that they've done anything. So yes. um, at the beginning of the book, you kind of, uh, like all those kind of fridge magnets, it talks about, you know, don't look in, look in the real window. You're not going that way. So you yes. kind of, lesson one is make peace with your past. And lesson two is about, forgiving your parents which I think when you become one you definitely (laughs) go oh yeah whoops (laughs) I think it's time I stopped blaming my parents for everything so let's talk a little bit about how people can maybe make peace with their past and and sort of Mm -hmm. move forward in instead of getting stuck in that as
0: a sort of a blame game. Mm. So it's really interesting. I I was asked a question, uh, I was being interviewed the other day and they asked me, you know, how do we rewrite our past? And I said, we don't, we don't, we're not, we can't, nobody can rewrite their past. And what I say in the book is, you know, the bad news is what's done is done, but the good news is what's done is done. Like it's done. And like, I love that you reference, you know, these kind of fridge magnets. And I think part of the challenge with Personal development, or um, self help, or, or uh, motivation, if you will, which is kind of, kind of where this book sits. Though it's very much more in the stealth help genre, so it should feel entertaining and also deliver some wisdom. Is it? I think we convince ourselves that if we just read the right book or pay the right coach or come stumble across the right inspirational quote on Instagram, that all of our problems will be solved. And, and what I know after 15 years of interviewing some of our, our leading psychologists, uh, as well as sort of doctors and dieticians and, and, and all sorts of experts, is that any change that you want to make is not a click your fingers overnight solution. So it takes some grunt and sometimes that grunt can feel a little bit icky. Like doing the work is not the path of least resistance. It's tough change. And so I think first acknowledging that making peace with your past, which is how I term it in the book, is is not going to be read that chapter and you're done and you're moving forward. Like it would be remiss of me to suggest that. I don't think that any that any uh any chapter of any book can achieve that. It's like the starting oh. point, that the, the thing that might just
1: tip you into being brave enough to start exploring.
0: Correct. And I got the most beautiful woman um, message from a woman uh, who's 64 the other day saying, you know, I'm 64. I've just finished reading your book and I'm finally giving myself permission to make peace with some of the mistakes that I've made in the past. And I just want to say, thank you. And, you know, had I had that when I was growing up, because I honestly thought that I was the only one who didn't have their shit together. I thought everybody else knew what they were doing. And, you know, the older you get, the more you realise that nobody knows what they're doing. That's why there's a lesson in the book that's called No One Knows WTF They're Doing because I think we need to acknowledge that we need to get better at acknowledging that so that we don't all feel so alone. I kind of liken it to like being out on a lake and all sitting in our own individual dinghies where we're actually all out in the same, like we should be in the same boat, but we're not. We're sitting in our own individual. Worrying things. about what everyone else is thinking about us in those boats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I hope that this book goes, you you know, you mentioned me airing my dirty laundry and I guess what I would like people listening to know, to know is that, yes, I do share some of my, some of my um, not quite, not quite finest moments in the book, uh, but there's always an intention. And so the challenge for me was, Can I blend something that is very entertaining? Because I want you to laugh out loud. I want it to feel like lunch with your very, very best friends, kind of crossed with a therapy session. So you come for the lulls and you stay for the wisdom, or the other way around. I don't care. That's a great description. But I want people to feel entertained, but I also want them to feel inspired. And so the challenge for me was can I blend, this is not a memoir, but can I blend some of my story with? what I have learned after, you know, a decade plus interviewing these incredible minds, plus what does the data say and what do all of the women that I've surveyed for this book specifically have to say, can I blend that all together to deliver something that feels valuable but also feels entertaining? And so to take a really long time to answer your question, you can tell that I'm usually the one asking the questions, not answering them. Um, I think the first step to making peace with your past is acknowledging that it exists. You can't rewrite it. You can't run away from who you used to be. You have to bring all of those old selves with you, and they need to coexist in you with the good bits and the great bits and the and the awesome versions of you because I just we are like in constant evolution. You know, there's no destination. It's a constant work in progress. So that i think that acknowledgement is really key and then the second part i think is is apologizing and that may not necessarily be apologizing to the people who may have been involved it may but it may not it may just be apologizing to yourself for having made a decision then that has since caused you distress Because I think we are so tough on ourselves for the things that we get wrong and it would serve us all really, really well if we could get a little bit better at being kinder to ourselves. And, again, that's easier said than done. So what I've tried to do in the book is really give you practical strategies as to ways that we can do that. And, you know, uh, there's not a person listening to this or or nor alive that hasn't made a mistake or kept a secret or stuffed something up. So I always say, like, welcome to the world's least exclusive club. Every single person, sorry, I'll just turn it off, every single person that you know is in here. Yeah, I, Oprah, I, your mum, <laughs> my mum, everyone is in here. We all have those secrets. It's okay. Like, we all stuff something, stuff things up. That's just part of being a human being. So, yeah, making peace with it and then apologizing to yourself, maybe to the universe, maybe to the people involved. But I don't know that you can necessarily let something go until you've at very least apologized to yourself.
1: Because oh, I, I, well, we're so mean to decision. ourselves, aren't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. I think like, I mean, the things sometimes we say in our head, like, you know, you might wake up and go, God, you're such a fat, lazy cow. You're stupid. <laughs> I can't believe you stuffed that up. I would not say that to even someone I didn't like, obviously. But, I mean, the things we say to ourselves is just is mean, and I agreed. So as well as the acknowledgement, obviously a big part and theme throughout the book
0: is just acceptance. It's okay, you know. <laughs> agreed, agreed. But herein lies the issue because that sounds awesome. Acceptance. Okay. That sounds great. I want to buy into that. But as I said, I'm 37. So I've probably been hardcore bullying myself. And that's exactly what you just described is talking to yourself in an awful way that you would never speak to anybody else. That's real bullying behavior. And I've probably been doing that for, I'd say, I don't know, 25 years. If I'm 37, I'd say it probably started in my very, very early teens. And so- I don't know that there's any solution that's going to allow us to click our fingers and stop doing that. Like those neural pathways in our brain are so bedded down. We've spent decades for most of us really infusing those neural pathways with this quite negative self-talk that I just don't think it's realistic to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop doing that and then my life will be infinitely better. I think we have to acknowledge, that, and then that was the hard work bit that I was talking about, is that you have to catch yourself every time and tell yourself something different and say, no, I'm not doing that today. And that is hard work. It's much harder work than sitting there and zoning out and and doing what you've done this whole time because that is a muscle that is really, if you imagine that I worked out my right bicep at the gym every day for 25 years and left my left arm hanging by my side, you can imagine the difference between them, right? So if you've been flexing this muscle of being awful to yourself, especially for a long period of time, you have to build up the other one and that doesn't happen overnight. So I hope that the book goes some way So at least giving people the tools to begin starting to repair that relationship to
1: catch yourselves. I I mean, it's
0: quite interesting. There's
1: um, that guy John Gottman who talks about relationships and how he predicted which couples would stay together, and it was that kind of five-one ratio. And you know, if there were five nice interactions or sarcastic eye rolls or something, uh, you know, there had to be one negative to five positive. And ideally, Mm. that's probably what we should be to ourselves. For every time we say, God, you idiot, we should be Mm -hmm. saying, you know, well done, you did a good job. But we probably have it the other way around. We probably say five mean Mm. things to one nice thing. So I agree, even if we can just shift the dial, even a slightly in our favor, because that, you know, those 1% incremental differences do make a difference uh, Mm. over time. I mean, I'm 48. Believe me, I got a
0: decade on you. It's still happening. (laughs) Um, No... And I think that that illustrates the fact, you know, you're obviously, you know, well, the reason that I'm on the podcast is because you're interested in personal development. And um, so I would suspect that you, that's not a new message for you. You've heard that a number of times. And so I think you're right. I think it's not about just sure, catch it, but I don't know that, that um, kind of trying to combat that thought is necessarily the right headspace because I I actually think simply and and a lot of psychologists I'm sure would would agree, It's about catching it, acknowledging it and thinking like, oh, there's that thought again. There's me being awful to myself again. And yes, perhaps replace it with something that's a little bit kinder. But I think the first step is awareness, right? So catching yourself. Imagine if you wrote down every negative thought that you had about yourself in a day. And in fact, I would challenge people listening to do that. Or in an hour or in a morning or whatever, just jot it down in the notes section of your phone or or keep a pen and paper handy if you're working and you could keep it on your desk. But I I actually think it's really interesting to, to collect some data on that. Because we have, you know, they say we have something like 30,000 thoughts a day. I don't know how that's even possible. But, you know, many, many, many of those are subconscious. But I do think that, that starting to pay real attention to the ways in which you talk to yourself is vital because you're so right. We would never, if my, one of my daughters came home and said to me, oh, you know, I painted a picture at daycare today and it wasn't very good, I wouldn't be saying to her, like, you're an idiot, you're never going to make it, what's wrong with you, I can't believe you couldn't do that. I would be saying like, sweetheart, don't worry about it. Like that's just one painting. You'll do another one tomorrow and I bet it will be great. And I'm sure that you learned something from that, from that bad painting. Don't, don't sweat it. Like yeah. it's okay. So uh, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm the last person that should be giving parenting advice. That is definitely not one of my strong suits, but I think it applies to every, to every area of our lives. And the other example that I give in the book is, you know, if your mum came to you and said, oh, sweetheart, like I've put in a couple of, on a couple of kilos in lockdown, you wouldn't be saying, you fat slob, what's wrong with you? Get out there and go for a run. You know, we just, we need to really pay attention to the words that we use and the ways in which we talk to ourselves because it just doesn't serve anybody.
1: Yeah, because there's, there's two sort of things for me. There's the, 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 the saying mean things to yourself in your head and then the overthinking and the worrying. Like whenever I post anything about, overthinking like it gets so much traction because it is it's so universal um and and so like lesson three which you've got which is you know stop worrying no one knows what the fuck they're doing um and i you know i was thinking about that i mean seriously if you heard me talk to a stranger at a party i was at a dinner party last night i mean you would think i was an actual boss like you know i've got my own podcast and i'm doing this and i also run a business on the side And and like five minutes before we came on recording, I am having technical issues. I'm sticking a little piece of label there so I remember where to put the dial. Um, I'm watching a YouTube (laughs) video to remind me how to download. So like, I've no idea what I'm doing either, but for all intents and purposes, it looks pretty good. The end result looks fine. But you know, behind the scenes, we're all flailing around. So the worrying thing, you do actually give some good practical advice. So I kind of like to dig into a bit of that There's some Mm. exercises you talk about in terms of wrangling your worry bully. um, And then you also kind of have a four-step thing about awareness, acceptance. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which of those you think is the most relevant or both. I'd just like to, because those are things that I think that, again, we hear these things again and again and again, but I just find you hear it from a different voice. You hear it written in a different way. You hear it on a day that you're a little bit more willing to hear it. You've had a different experience and so I, I just find reinforcing all these things and s- things do click into place and it takes a while but those I thought were really practical things. So can we yeah. talk a little bit about
0: those? Yeah, definitely. So I I agree with you and I, I think we do hear these things a lot and so my intent with that chapter was to try and give people tangible practical tools to help them better manage worry because I am an absolute worry wart. I have generalised anxiety disorder Um, but I don't think you need to have, uh, anxiety disorder to really grapple with worry. And I think we use the terms interchangeably and really anxiety is just one of many emotions that we need and use. Everybody has felt anxious about a looming deadline or about a presentation at work or whatever it might be. And so I think anxiety and worry Uh, are used interchangeably and essentially they're kind of very similar things. You know, worry. Anxiety is just sort of worry on crack, right? Absolutely, yeah. Dial it up big time. Yeah, exactly. So I talk about the four A's of anxiety or worry. And so I was just trying to give people an easy way to remember four simple steps that you can use every time worries pop up for you. So the first one is awareness. So simply I think we very quickly reach for the wine bottle or the tub of wine. And all we know is that we're feeling crap. The tub of wine. <laughs> t- oh, Where do I buy a tub, tub of wine. wine? I want a tub of wine. <laughs> <laughs> tub of wine as well. The of maybe we, that, maybe tub that's tub of the new wine. side hustle. <laughs> yes, Casey and Charlotte's that. tub of wine. <laughs> exactly. When, one, when a bottle is not enough. <laughs> Anyway, so we reach for the tub of wine and we guzzle it down because we feel crap, but we don't actually take a second to acknowledge why. So awareness is simply about recognising those symptoms in your body when worry or anxiety pop up. So maybe sweaty palms, maybe feeling a bit icky in the stomach, maybe feeling a bit hot under the collar, perhaps... uh, feeling like your heart your heart is racing those physical symptoms yeah, I get, that like tell that us. my throat sort of seems to like contract yes
1: you know like i can't communicate
0: that's right. And so I don't know about you, but for me, I, I tend to quickly look for something to make me feel better. Either I pick up my phone and start scrolling to distract me or I go to the kitchen and make something to eat or I pour myself a glass of wine or whatever it might be, just anything to distract me from the feeling. Where in actual fact, if we were able to just stop for a second, bring some awareness to it and go like, oh, that's funny, my palms are sweaty and, and I'm talking really fast. I wonder what that's about. Why am I feeling anxious? Why am I feeling worried? So I think awareness is the first piece. The second piece is acceptance. So remembering that our brain is designed to keep us safe. And in and the ways in the way in which it does that is by giving us things to worry about. So you'll know that's weird, mind, isn't it? Like that doesn't seem like so counterintuitive. a good solution. <laughs> no, and it's almost like, you know, when you scroll through social media and and a. Uh, A picture grabs your attention. What our brain does kind of self selects with the things that worry us rather than things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. But it does it for a reason. And it can't differentiate between a lion chasing you down the street and your fear of people talking about you negatively at the dinner party that you went to last night. It doesn't know the difference. So, what happens? No, they, of course they wouldn't have been. You brought the tub of wine, didn't you? I, I, told I you, brought two you. tubs of wine. That is a hit. That's a hit at every dinner party. Uh, so your brain doesn't know the difference between those worries. And so you might feel yourself in that kind of fight or flight state, even though all you're worrying about is... I don't know, the fact that your mum is driving three hours tomorrow and you're worried about her in the car, but your body responds like there is a lion knocking on your door. So I think accepting that, like, okay, I'm worrying here. I can feel that I'm worrying. Um, however, I know that my brain's doing that as a, as, a, uh, as a protective mechanism. That's what it was designed to do. So just accepting that, that, that that's our brain's job in essence. So there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. And then the third one is ask. So ask yourself, should I be worried about this? Because I would say that 90%, and this is in my study population of one, um, would 90% of our worries would be stuff that is completely outside of our control. Or that doesn't happen. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so to give you an example, let's say that I'm worrying, if I'm worrying about the fact that I haven't gone and had my mammogram, that is something that is probably worth worrying about because that worry will spur us into action to book the mammogram to get the test, which we know will deliver better outcomes than me continuing to put it off. But if I'm worried about the flight that I'm taking tomorrow and whether or not my plane is going to fall out of the sky, there is no amount of worry that is going to change the outcome of that event. It either will or it won't. It probably won't. There's a teeny, 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 tiny chance that it will. So I may as well not invest any mental energy in that worry because that mental energy needs to be used for other stuff. So, asking yourself whether or not it's worth worrying about. And when I say worth worrying about, I just mean: is there anything that the worry can force, can, can uh, position me to do about it? And if not, then perhaps that's one that we should try to let go of. But the last one is: uh, so we've done uh, accept uh, awareness, acceptance. Ask the last one is alternative. And the alternative is, so what we usually do is, I don't know about you, but what I would usually do is kind of feel sick about it, turn myself inside out, maybe make a pros and cons list, maybe pick up the phone to three or four different people um, to try and get their advice on what I should do about this worry. Spend a significant amount of time up in my head, really thinking about it and, and, and worrying about it and investing that emotional energy. But actually, we forget that we're allowed to choose to do something different, even if that's what we have always done. So to give you an example, I talk about designated worry time. And so that is saying, okay, I'm at work and I don't have time to worry about this now or I don't want it to distract me from this very important task that I'm doing. So I'm going to set a designated worry time for this at 5.30pm tonight when I'm on my way home from work for half an hour. Or uh, 15 minutes at 12:30 today when I take my lunch break. And that is my designated time to worry about this. So let's say that it is about you haven't booked the mammogram and you're worried because you might have found a lump or you're not really sure and it just feels a bit ropey and you know, boobs are hard for us to for us to check so let's say that that's the worry. So if you set aside 15 minutes during your lunch break, you might sit there and think like, okay, here we go, here's my designated worry time. Worry, 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 and our brain will get bored of that pretty quickly. So I would say after 5 minutes of sitting there catastrophizing about, you know, your impending impending doom. So if you give it uh, the attention that it kind of you think it wants, it almost burns itself out as opposed to just trying to ignore it. that then it keeps popping up going, I'm here, I'm here. Exactly. I'm here. exactly. Because I just don't know that our, that our brain, like think about that worry. If you were to sit down and worry about that, you would probably go like, haven't had the test, definitely got a lump, definitely got breast cancer, definitely doom, 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 doom. doom. Like you'd get there pretty quick. If you're a real warrior, you would get there pretty quickly. And so then your brain goes, okay, like we're pretty solution focused your brain would go, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? And the answer is I'm going to use the next 10 minutes, which I still have in my designated worry time that I set, to pick up the phone, I need to book an appointment with my GP, I need to get a referral, or I need to call the mammogram center or whatever it might be. And I would hazard a guess by the time you've done those two things, you've still got five minutes left of your designated worry time. And you might either go, like, Well, that's done. No point in worrying about that anymore. I'm going to use the five minutes to do something fun or call my mom or whatever. Or you might use that five minutes to just really bed down. Okay. I am worried about that. I acknowledge that I'm worried about that. However, I've just done something about it. And on Thursday, I'm going to go and have my mammogram and I'll get the results and then I'll know. So either way, you've, you've ended up with a much, much better result than you worrying about it for two weeks and not necessarily doing anything about it. So I think you're right. I think it is about giving the giving it the oxygen that it deserves and then working out whether you can do anything about it. And you know, to you to to double back to the other example that I gave you, if it's something that that is completely out of your control, but it's still really plaguing you. So for example, the, the plane falling out of the sky, use that designated worry time to read some articles about people who are scared of flying, or watch a YouTube video on practical tips to help people who do have a fear of flying or Qantas and ask if they, I think they used to do like a fear of flying program, call and see if they still do it. Call a psychologist and book in and talk to them about why you might be it's really It's interesting actually because I always idea. think
1: like definitely for me, obviously for some people when they're anxious or worried, it just puts them into absolute freeze mode, whereas yep. I kind of charge the other way and just do something practically and, you know, that's almost my kind of protective. But at least when you're doing something proactive, you feel like your momentum is going forward. But I've never sort of thought about actually taking the opportunity to almost like learn something new or, or teach yourself something new. So you're just getting another
0: little tool that might mm-hmm. counter
1: counterbalance your uh, irrational worries.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, yes, and I think that's why the ask piece is so vital. Like really asking yourself whether or not you, you've got any control over the outcome of the thing that you're worried about So for example, let's say, so one of my biggest fears is that, you know, people don't like me. So let's say that I'm you and I went to your dinner party last night and I was talking about my podcast and I was talking about my new book. And then today I wake up and I had a couple of glasses of wine and I'm like, Oh God, what did I say? Did I sound like I was being too this? Or was I boring people about my book or whatever? Let's say that that's what I'm worried about. Like the honest truth is, You'll probably never know whether or not they thought that. And also, who cares? Like they probably had a, gl- a couple of glasses of wine and said a couple of things that they woke up this morning and, and thought, you know, oh, what was that thing that I said? And
1: they may be worried well. about what you
0: think about them. Like we're That's all right. basically worrying about the same stuff as you That's said right. in our boat. <laughs> That's right. So you have two options. You can either accept that that is out of your control, what's done is done, and choose to move forward, or you can pick up the phone to them and say, hey, I was just thinking about, I feel like I was really harping on about my book last night. I'm really sorry if I was kind of chewing your ear off about it. And I think you'd probably find that they would say, like, oh my God, no, I loved hearing about that. That was so great. And you'll walk away feeling better. The only caveat that I would give to that is I used to do a lot of that, particularly when I would go out and party on the weekends. And then I would call my friends to find out you what know, you Sunday. did Sunday. Yeah. But also to find out what they thought of that did they think it was funny or did they think it was stupid? And I would really rely on this external opinion to dictate how I felt about that thing. And it was kind of like doing a stock take, you know, of, Of and it wasn't that I had sort of blacked out and didn't remember. I would remember, but I wanted to know, did they think that thing that I said that was mean about that person, did they think that was funny or did they think that that was mean? And so I would just kind of want to double back over the details and so the only caveat that I would give to that is that we do really need to learn to form our own opinions about our behaviour and about our worth, you know, the, the, and, and that's part of why, you know, the partying and everything had to end for me because I just was so sick and also I grew up a bit, right? Like I'm we, we tend to do that a lot kind of in our 20s and then in our 30s, we sort of start to slowly come out of that. Well, that has been my experience anyway. And so I think, you know, part of growing up is learning to form our own opinions about ourselves and um, being able to walk away from that thing and think to yourself, you know what, maybe I did talk about my book a bit too much or I did say that thing that was silly, but that person loves me and they know that I'm not whatever it is that I'm thinking that they might think I am. Or if you don't know them very well, like, oh, well, if they do, then they do. Oh, that's one of the, <laughs> that's okay. the nicest things about getting older is caring less about what people think.
1: I mean, I still desperately want people to like me, obviously, but I, yeah. I genuinely it's not as, as stressful. I, you know, I have a 21-year-old and an 18-year-old and I would not go back to that age for anything on earth. But I, I think it's it seem the same? to what you
0: experienced?
1: Uh, I think it's it certainly heightened with my daughter who's 21 that that whole social media scrolling, flicking, can't concentrate on one thing is is a whole different thing. Um, mm. I have a very different relationship I think with my kids than I did with my parents. Um, my parents were separated. I went to boarding school. Um, So as a result, I'm I'm kind of used to a little bit more distance, whereas my kids were really close and my daughter always laughs. She's like, you are not going to hug me any longer? You just want to move away now? (laughs) (laughs) And so we kind of, you know, and I tried to do all the things that I felt like I didn't get from my childhood. Um, And then you just create new problems. So um, yeah, the parenting thing, I don't think any of us are experts at. Uh, One thing I thought was interesting, you know, you do a list of all the things that we shouldn't spend time worrying about. Mm. And a lot of those, as you get, a little bit more happy with yourself or as you say, you know, be your own best friend or build self-esteem, those things you don't worry so much about. So whether it's about what other people think or whether they haven't got the same opinion. Um, And I especially love the one, which I always try and tell my friends who are wildly jealous about (laughs) not worrying about your partner being unfaithful because there is literally Mm. nothing you can do about that at all. They're either going to do it or they're not. I mean, obviously you could drive them there (laughs) by either not shagging or being super jealous, but That, that's something I think is quite interesting. Have you seen that in terms of like jealousy? It's, it's just another wasted emotion. We waste
0: so much time. Oh my gosh. And you know what? I spent 10 years in a relationship with with both of us being unfaithful to the other because we were young and we were jealous. And, and I say unfaithful as in, you know, breaking up and getting back together. And there was always these you know, real gray zones where we kind of were together, but we weren't together, but we really loved each other, but we were kind of hooking up with other people to try and get over the other. And there was this just this tsunami of hurt and guilt. And it was, you know, I loved him desperately. I, you know, he's definitely one of my ones I talk about in the book. Um, very much my first love and, and there's a part of me that will love him for the rest of my life and that's okay but I think that the, that the cheating piece and this concept of infidelity and being unfaithful I just think that like you say it is what it is they either will or they won't and I say it, one of the things that I say in the book is like please just break up and then go and do it it is just not worth the hurt because I know that I really hurt him with my behaviours. He really hurt me with his. And it had a significant impact on my sense of self-worth. And I didn't come from a great baseline of of self-worth to begin with. So I've had to spend a lot of time rebuilding that and unpacking that, I suppose, and, and rebuilding it because I think it feels like the ultimate act of betrayal because, when you're in a long-term relationship with someone or even just a short-term but kind of intense relationship with someone and they choose somebody else over you, you think that what they've done is taken everything that you are, your spirit, your being, your generosity, your kindness, your looks, your body, so your physical self, your spiritual self, your emotional self, not to mention all of the time that you've invested in the relationship and actively chosen to spend 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 1 hour, one night with somebody that that often they don't know or at very least somebody other than you. And so that feels like they have prioritized this other person over over you and and that doesn't have that doesn't pay dividends for anybody's sense of self. I
1: know and it's weird and it's such a small thing. It's nothing to do with all of those things. I mean when you listen to Esther Perel, most people are not unfaithful because they don't love you or they don't fancy you. It's it's just another part of themselves and it it, it sometimes I kind of think of it as nothing. It's it's nothing mm-hmm. and yet it's everything. Um, That's right. And for me, I mean, this whole sort of overthinking guilt thing has has maintained my faithfulness in my very long marriage because it's not even about what I would have done to him. It'd be me. I will be beating myself
0: up every (laughs) single day for the rest of my life. And that's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's never worth it. And you know, one of the things that I say in the book, and I do a whole whole lesson on sex is I love lust. I love lust. I adore that dance. But the actual bit of like hooking up, I'm actually like kind of checked out by then. As in, obviously, that's in, in my former life. I'm very oh, a lot of it. I think a
1: lot of girls are guilty of that. They love the flirting. They, they want to be wanted. But do mm-hmm. they actually want that penis in their vagina? Maybe not.
0: No, that's right. But but by the time you get there, you're like, well, I kind of feel like I have to come through with the goods now because I've really sort of led led them on, and that's such a shame. You oh, know, it's a, such a shame. shame,
1: and I see that still now. I mean, some of my my son who's eighteen, some of these girls, they're just parading around like they're in a pop video, just being like this
0: sexualized and none of it's really connected to their actual body. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, I interviewed this incredible sexologist and relationship expert, Dr Nikki Goldstein, in the book, and she says that that sense of being chosen is the greatest validation um, and we are taught as women that that is the greatest validation that you can ever receive is being sexually desired by somebody. And I built my whole life off of that. That was, and and you know, I say in the book, and I'm so ashamed to say this, but to kind of close the loop on the cheating piece, I felt like I got extra points if somebody was also already in a relationship and they wanted me, because then I thought that they were somehow prioritizing me over the, over person the other person. That they were wow. With. Yeah. And that's not like that's so far from the truth. If you actually look at what it is, it's usually a few glasses of wine, this, you know, we're very much driven by emotion and those those lust fueled emotions are very, very powerful and our, our desire for acceptance and for validation from other people, particularly as women, is especially powerful. And I think that all of those things combined and, you know, as you say and as Esther Perel would say, you know, whatever is going on for you as an individual at that moment in time that it just all comes together and what you find you find yourself in a position whereby you and this other person enjoy each other for five minutes or one hour or one night or whatever it is and then all you are hit with the next day. And I don't necessarily know that this is the same for men, which I know is a huge generalization, but I would say for many of the men that I used to be with, uh, I don't know that they carry that same weight. And so, you know, I think we need to, those hurts are big and you know, I still carry a lot of them around with me from, you know, previous mistakes that I've done. They're really difficult hurts to move past and to let go of. And I love what you just said about your relationship because it's kind of a, a self-protection mechanism, right? Because I know now, and this is the good thing about going through shitty things and, and having grown through being a shittier version of myself, I know now that it's not worth it. So there is not a single man, woman, human being alive that I would sacrifice, no matter how great the sex was or how wonderful the lust was or whatever, that I would trade for the entirety that is my husband and our life together.
1: Well, bless. I love that. There just isn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing is you also know that there is that moment. There is that, mm-hmm. there's that tipping point where you might be having a little bit of playful banter with someone. There is that moment that you get that choice. And unfortunately, if you're out drinking, you might not be quite as uh, savvy about the choice. So, yeah, definitely. Mm. Look, I know I've, I've chatted to you. You've got a few more minutes. I've just got a couple yes. more things I just want to uh, talk yes, into. Uh, uh, kind of around the, uh, I, I was going to kind of talk about our bodies and, and the diet culture. But I think we were kind of talking mm. about the sex thing. So, I kind of want to merge the two. So I kind Mm. of wrote in my notes here, I was like, our bodies, why do we hate them so? Like Mm. the amount of time I have wasted just not liking something, clutching that roll of fat, berating mm-hmm. myself for something. I was just I ate. doing that.
0: funny I just
1: bought a new pair of these Lululemon leggings and they like go up to beneath my boobs. And it's great. Cause that's how I want my figure to be as flat <laughs> as that. Um, so, I mean, it's a waste. I have friends who literally, someone was telling me they go and Drive to some suburb and get something they inject, which is like a pregnancy hormone that makes you not hungry or some weird twisting. Yeah. yeah, and they're in their 40s. Yeah. So yeah. it, it kind of makes me sick. But I was talking to my daughter this morning and this kind of jumping, but you'll know why I'm jumping in a minute. Mm. So um, my daughter's currently in hotel quarantine because she's just come back from the US. And so we're ending up having these terrific conversations because she's just got all this time and. And mm-hmm. she was telling me a story today and I have rung her to ask her permission if she could say it. But she was saying her and a friend um, when they were, I don't know, maybe 13 or so, they were decided they were going to this party and they were like, I know. Why don't we also um, like shave our vaginas? Um, you know, wax our vaginas, not shave. <laughs> Why don't we mm-hmm. try waxing our vaginas? Because I think that's what, you know, that's what girls do when they get older. Mm-hmm. And so neither of them had seen each other naked and they got real shocked. They were like, oh, wow, that's weird. Yours looks like that. Mine looks like that. Which one is right? And I just thought, wow, that's just like, it sort of breaks your heart with the innocence of, you know, and not, which one's right? Oh, nothing's right. And I'm I'm sure you know why I'm mentioning this because there was a bit in the book I had, I was like, oh my God, I've always read about people in cosmopolitan, someone else who's done that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just talk about what you you did? Because I just, I mean, I just think, God, how awful that we just, Think about these sort of things and think that we're not perfect enough as we are.
0: Yes, of course. So when I was in my sort of early twenties, I saw a documentary on the ABC about labiaplasty. And so for people listening, if you don't know what labiaplasty is, cross your legs. legs. (laughs) It's essentially where they they remove all or part of the labia minora, so the inner lips of the vagina, and. I saw this documentary and it really planted a seed for me around exactly what you just described that your daughter experienced with her friend. Well, is my, am I supposed to do that? Is mine supposed to look like that? And obviously being a documentary about it, it showed lots of different vaginas. And I, and I probably, you know, I hadn't seen many vaginas at that at that point in time uh, and it, over the next kind of year or two really percolated for me um, and I did find myself asking myself those same questions. Now, we remember that we're talking like 15 years ago now. so and there was a lot of articles 2000s. then. I remember
1: looking in Marie Claire and they, they would do things like that. They would show yeah. like pictures which you probably hadn't seen before. So, again, it's just a new concern we may never have had before.
0: Yeah, and, and I must also say that porn then is not was not what porn is now. It was it was definitely not as mainstream as it as it is now. And even magazines like Penthouse and Playboy, um even the ones that were quite graphic. So, for example, I think it was Penthouse uh, over Playboy. Playboy was always considered to be a little bit more demure, but Penthouse was, and, and, and there are a couple of others, other ones where, you know, you would see women with their sort of legs spread. And and by law, at that point in time, they had to airbrush the menorah out. So the, the labia menorah was wow, considered too, okay. too graphic. So everyone looked the same. Everyone looked the same, and I didn't know that that they did that. So I just assumed that that's how everybody looked. And so what you sort of end up ended up with is what I call a Barbie panel. So if you lift up a Barbie skirt, you'll see that there's no, there's not even a line where her vagina would be. Yeah. There's just sort of this very flat, um, just a little uh, neat like mold, a mound. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's sort of a like a Barbie panel, no extra bit. And, you know, I hadn't spent a lot of time, as I said, looking at vaginas. Um, I hadn't spent a lot of time watching porn. Uh, The only vaginas that I had seen were sort of in these magazines that that all sort of looked the same. And so over the next sort of year or two after having seen that documentary, I started paying a lot more attention to myself and decided that I didn't like the way that my vagina looked. So it started just the agony of that. Like, ugh. I know, I know, and I and I really thought that my sense of sexual self worth was attached to the visibility or the look at, the look and feel of my genitals, which it just isn't. People At the time they get to that point, they're they're pretty pretty into the whole idea. I think. <laughs> yeah, and so I um. So I, I started researching and reading articles and uh, I saw, you know, two or three surgeons uh, and didn't quite feel right with the first two. And then I think the third one I ended up seeing the surgeon that I had seen in the in the documentary. And he sort of said to me, listen, and he showed me a whole bunch of pictures to sort of back this up. He was like, look, what you're talking about, you are very, very minor in the extra bits department. And he showed me all different pictures I suppose to really make sure that I was making an informed decision if that's what I wanted to do but I had at, at that point I had convinced myself that that's what I was doing and that it would be the key to unlocking more confidence in the bedroom more pleasure you know really for me until that point sex had always been just something that I did to please somebody else nothing to do with pleasure for myself and so I decided to go ahead and schedule the surgery. And uh, I have to say the only thing really that I ended up with was some lost sensitivity. And I say in the book, you know, I'm still waiting for my Vagina of the Year award. So <laughs> and I the Vagina it. of the Year award goes to... <laughs>
1: but, but hey, are they still doing these operations? Is this still something that people get done? Yeah. So yeah, what would you is. say to anyone else who who might, you know, because as you say, we all have our own uh, insecurities and worries. What would you say to someone else who was in the same situation that was considering it from someone who's had
0: the experience? Well, look, I think, I think about this quite a lot because I've got two little girls and I, I feel mortified that they would ever consider doing something like that to themselves and feeling that they are anything other than perfect exactly as they are. That said... I also appreciate that we live in an incredible era whereby if you don't like something about yourself, you can change it. And I don't judge or begrudge anybody for doing that. So what I would say is if it's something that you are seriously considering is, you know, really, really do your research, see multiple surgeons shop around until you find somebody that you're really comfortable with. And I hope, I really hope that what you find when you see them is that actually you're okay, just as you are, because they'll show you lots of pictures of other people. And that will kind of give you a good, a good benchmark, I suppose. Um, and I would say, you know, I'm not down with porn as the main form of sexual education for young people. I think it's incredibly damaging. That's not something that I am, am spruking here. However, I would say go and watch a whole bunch of porn videos and have a look at all of the different vaginas that are out there and on display very, very publicly now to decide whether or not you really do feel like you're outside what is normal because the trick is that is that there just isn't a normal. Just like why would vaginas or penises be any different to any other part of our body? If you take hands for example, I've got these massive, big, weird ears, and a friend of mine has these tiny, perfect ears, and I'm kind of jealous. But it's okay. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) Ears, faces, arms, legs, torsos, bottoms. There's like, why would that single part of our body be any different? Like, there are all shapes and colors and sizes. And so, look, I think I think we are living in a little bit of a better time. We're seeing any a huge amount of Than when I made that decision, Um, we are seeing a huge amount of diversity in all sorts of ways, you know, on screen and in film and in social media. And I think that that that's wonderful. So I would say consider it really, really, really carefully. I mean, you know, it took me like weeks to recover from that. I still have lost sensitivity. It actually didn't improve my confidence in the bedroom or how I felt about my own sexual self-worth. So do I regret it now that it's done, it's done, exactly. so I'm not going to waste I'm regretting <laughs> that. However, would I do it again if I was able to double back? No, I wouldn't. I think that's the thing. I mean,
1: uh, you know, it kind of
0: is. Uh, the whole book has that theme, isn't it?
1: There are things that we do in our lives that <laughs> maybe not my best choice, my, my f- finest moment, but we've yep. done it and The more we beat ourselves up about it and the more we get stuck in that and make that who we are. Because what we do in the the book, you say, is not who we are. And it's the same. If you don't like someone's opinion, it doesn't mean you don't like them. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think it's very much the same that our behavior is not necessarily who we are at our core. Um, Mm -hmm. And I like the theme you have about, I mean, you talk about finding um, your husband, your one. Uh, Mm -hmm. about finding a man who is kind. But I think the whole theme for me through the whole book is that kindness, be kind to ourselves, Mm -hmm. find people who are kind to us. And Mm -hmm. so I just kind of, yeah, how would you kind of sum up what you'd like people to take away the most as the kind of the gift
0: from, from reading it? I would say life is too short to be hung up on feeling shitty about your body, spending time in relationships with people who don't deserve you doing jobs and work that simply doesn't light your fire. Like no matter how long, even though we're living longer than ever before, we are still here for an unfairly short amount of time. And so what I hope that the book does is inspire people to go, you know what? That behavior isn't serving me anymore. And if I want to make real friends with my future, I'm going to make peace with my past and then start to implement some of these strategies because I think that you deserve whatever it is that you want out of life regardless of where you've come from. It doesn't matter if you used to be a slut or a drinker or a bully or uh, lazy or any of those things. You get to choose. Each and every single day you get to choose. And I think that, you know, if we can bump up our self-worth a little bit, recognise that we're allowed to choose and that that we are entitled to build the lives that were designed for us, and also, are able to design, to be designed by us that we get to choose. And so, I hope this book feels like a bestie in a book that you read it cover to cover, but also that you double back to the chapters that you need at any given point in time, and then it does feel like your 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 big sister.
1: Yeah, to and hold then, your uh,
0: hand through some of. A lot things. of these
1: books, because self help is is an area I'm really interested in, and self development. But a lot of these mm. books, you know, it's the, it's the same point they're making every single chapter. Or to be honest, I just skim through them and I get the vague idea. But I, honestly, I read all of it. it, it it's oh. it's really, and, and I read a lot of these. So I, I do think it's something that's a great gift to, to give to a friend. It, it, I think certainly the younger you can learn some of these lessons, yes. the better. I've come to the party late. But um Casey so, thank you so much for coming to uh, coming to coming on the show um the bad girls guide to better a stealth help guide to getting your act together I thoroughly recommend it and I've really enjoyed thank you so much for your honesty authenticity transparency it was, it was you made it really easy for me today to chat and um yeah I'm sure pleasure that everyone um, who's interested, if you head to the website, you'll be able to find out details how to get a copy of the book and also where else you can connect with Casey. So thank you very much for everyone who listens, as always, over and out. That's all the time we have. This podcast is brought to you by the fine people, well, me, at thinrichhappy.com. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe. Or if you really enjoyed this episode, please leave a review which will help other people find the podcast. For extra podcast goodies, you can visit BeLessCrap.com.